Is this when we start? Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Hello, 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 hello. You're saying that to our audience and not to me, right? Um, to, to everyone, really. Anyone and everyone who is listening. There were enough hellos for all of us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. That's it. That's it. That's the show. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. The end. The end. Uh, what's new in the world of Elixir? I was just thinking, what's the shortest podcast you've ever listened to? I don't know. I've never. I never think about the length. I just listen. Oh, a friend of mine had like a short minute-long podcast about current events. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but you couldn't. Uh, do you want to do the one-minute Elixir talk update since we haven't been on air for a few weeks? Um. Well, what updates do we have? Um. Phoenix one point four, Ecto three point That's out. That's the thing. Elixir one point eight in dev, getting ready that's to right. go. Desmond just spoke at Elixir, the, the big, big elixir, elixir, the big one. <laughs> big, big Elixir was in it? New Orleans. How, was it medium or big? Um, was it medium or big? I think there were about 80 people there. Oh, nice. That's pretty people. cool. Yeah. yeah, I was in this really cool old theater down in the French Quarter. Nice. And yeah, it was a really nice venue. Uh, you talked all about hot code upload upgrades, which um, if you listen to one of our past episodes, you can hear Desmond talk about a bit more. Yeah. It went pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, the whole point of the talk, again, was like, not that you should or should not do it. It's just that it's this kind of dark area in the community. And I wanted to get more information out there so people could at least be making informed decisions about what they're doing. Um, and, you know, it is it is fairly involved doing hot upgrades. Well, one of the points of the talk was that if you meet certain criteria, then it's free. It's like really easy to do. You don't have to think about it. But when you start getting into migrating state, then you really have to plan out your releases a little more and coordinate among your team. You can't just do things like continuous deployment um, because you need to think about what's going in the release and how to upgrade things, which sounds complicated, except except we do this already with database migrations. Mm. Like it's the same sort of changing state that you would do in your regular application. And we think it's totally normal just because we've gotten used to it. So in the same way, you can get used to doing this. That's a great point. Thank you. I like it. I, did, I had nothing <laughs> else to add other than like, that's a very good, uh, a really good point. I heard, quote unquote, you crushed it. So cool. good on Desmond. Thanks. You know, this was actually the first talk I ever gave at a conference. Really? Yeah, I mean, I was rejected by MPEX twice. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you should have put a better talk in for your own conference. I <laughs> uh, can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hilarious that you got re- self-rejected. And it was e- you even got rejected when you put in a talk uh, for the New York one when you lived in LA, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I thought you meant like when you put in a talk for like the New York one when you lived in New York, but I'm pretty sure no. we di- didn't allow that, right? I don't think I ever did. Well, that's not true because the first year a couple of organizers spoke. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, well, on uh, the topic of MPEX, how is the planning going for MPEX LA? Oh, thanks for asking. So, the CFP is still open. Um, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be open for probably another week. So it's a really short CFP. If any of you are thinking about submitting a talk, uh, hop hop to it and get a talk in. We treat our speakers really well. 
and it's really fun to come and, and hang out at MPEX. Uh, it's always a good party. And we're looking for a lot of technical talks, like, you know, stuff about the Beam internals, um, less so about adoption. Here's our migrate, like, here's how we went from our Rails app to a Phoenix app. Uh, there's a lot of great talks about that out there. And we're trying to dig into more uh, just areas that people don't really know about, um, which, again, we don't touch that much in our normal Elixir code. But the MPEX audiences are senior developers. We're new to Elixir, but we've been around the block. We're interested in some of these fundamentals. And there's a lot of really cool engineering that's gone into this technology. So, uh, submit a talk. Yeah, submit a couple. And um, the date is Saturday, February 2nd. So if even if you're not submitting a talk, mark your calendars because it's a great time to be in LA. We have a couple of trainings that we're putting together. Uh, stay tuned for that. I don't want to give too much away. But um, there will be a couple of trainings the day before. Nice. And do you have any words of wisdom uh, for first-time conference speakers? Or maybe people who've never put a talk proposal in before? There's a common misconception that just because you know a thing, everyone knows a thing. Like, when I, even when I was walking on stage for this upgrades talk, I was like, everyone's going to know this stuff. Like, what am I even doing here? But people don't know it. So if you've been working on something cool, or if you haven't, and you want an excuse to learn it, just like, put a talk in. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be fine. We will support you. We'll give you some coaching. We'll review your slides ahead of time if you want. Like, we're all here to make the experience great and to help you uh, become a better speaker and get the word out about stuff that you're doing in the community. Yeah. And uh, it... it it seems really scary and honestly as someone who's given a couple of talks and still gets terrified it is kind of terrifying but it's a fantastic experience and it feels so great at the end and uh you know there's a lot of people who get a lot of value out of this content you have to remember that and uh yes and or you could be like desmond and i and start a podcast and speak about things that you know very little about and act like authorities and then publish retractions <laughs> regularly yep <laughs> good times so speaking of things that we don't know anything about but we'll discuss anyway uh what's on the docket for today chris i think that we should touch on a subject we haven't touched on before which mm -hmm. is the mysterious marvels no i was trying to do an alliteration but i really failed um the mysterious world of macros how do you feel about that you were pretty close to getting some good alliteration going. I know, but then I had a complete brain fart, so it just ended. But uh, yeah, macros. 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 Um, have you used macros? I have used macros. Okay. What do you know? What do I know about macros? So the first thing to understand about macros is... Uh, <laughs> so it's it's important to understand the compilation steps that happen when you um are compiling your elixir code so elixir is a compiled language takes your source code runs it through several steps of processing and then you end up with uh beam instructions which are like um uh source code with like native erlang vm instructions and along the way, your source code goes through several transformation steps. And one of those steps is it gets parsed into an AST, an abstract syntax tree, which is a, um, a representation of your code in this data structure that uh, the compiler can understand and optimize and do things with. So when you write a macro, 
you are writing commands to alter that AST directly before it gets compiled into um, later code. So it's a way to write code that generates other code or modifies code that you have written before it gets um, resolved into the final uh, the final compiled code. Hmm. Can you give me some good examples of when I might use a macro? If you're sharing functionality, so users of Phoenix, when you write a controller and at the top you say use myapp.web, uh, comma controller. That is a macro. That's a special macro called using. Um, and you can look more into that if you look in your web.ex file. And that's set up so that you can say, you know, use myapp.web channels or views or whatever controller. And then it includes a bunch of things into your file. And it basically drops uh, several lines of code into your controller so you don't have to use Phoenix controller, import your router helpers, add view helpers, whatever. And it condenses all that into one single line. Mm -hmm. So what about any other situations? Like, can I use macros to, to extend the language or anything like that? Well, I think um, most of Elixir is written in Elixir as macros, right? Like keywords like if are macros. Isn't that true? That's true. Yeah. I feel like you're leading leading me on here. <laughs> I was kind of leading you on, yeah. Okay. So I, I was thinking about other situations where you might use it. So um, macros can be really handy for defining things like DSLs, right? Like, so uh, I can write something that's very specific to um, the domain I'm working in, in a different language, you might say, like a <laughs> domain-specific language. Um, and I might be able to get some more power from the thing I'm writing by, by using a macro to do that. So good example of this that you might all be familiar with, uh, is in Ecto, uh, schemas when we're defining, um, our, when we're defining our actual, um, schema inside of there and we use, uh, we say field that's actually gets expanded into a macro. Same thing with the Phoenix router when you're defining scopes and namespaces. That is a good point as well. Yeah, you mean like the resources function and things like that? Uh, yes. Yeah. And I guess pipeline, that is also one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a larger code base like we have at Frame, we've ended up using macros quite a lot um, in order to, to extract out very... Uh, like very common pieces of functionality that we want to share across different areas of the code base. Um, and instead of doing that via, I guess we could have done it via function calls, but sometimes like we want to, um, we want to be able to inject the same pieces of code time and time again. And we use macros a lot to do that. Um, and that's probably one of the most common places we do it. And a lot of those are just using macros, to be honest. Um, but we do do it in some other places where, uh, for instance, we want to inject like some domain specific language in there, like defining how a certain value gets serialized or something like that. And it has its own specific functionality. We've ended up using macros for that as well. So can, can you break that down a little bit? Because uh, mm -hmm. there's always the caveat of don't use too many macros because it can screw up your code base and not screw it up, but it can make it hard to read if you have all these custom keywords basically and you should use a function if you can and only if you can't resort to a macro yeah so how do you draw that distinction uh, yeah so 
I tend to not always agree with the like, don't ever use macros. I think they're a really powerful part of the language. And actually, I think the fact that um, the way Elixir is written, it's sometimes quite difficult to shared code. Um, and macros are like one of the best and easiest ways you have to do that, to be honest. Um, obviously, yes, you could extract it out into a function, call that function from a couple of places, but that doesn't always work for you. You might need to um, define specific functions inside of a specific module a few times or include the same code over and over and over. Um, and that's where something like using a using macro is really, really powerful. It can also make... Um... What am I trying to say? It can make your module APIs much cleaner, like uh, the gen server behavior is a using macro. Mm. Uh, sorry, I live near an airport. <laughs> um, yeah, when you say use gen server, that drops in a bunch of gen server callbacks that are required if you were writing Erlang, but we don't have to do an Elixir, like um, code change or even handle, handle cast. And I think there's one or two others. Mm-hmm. Um, which you would then mark as def overridable in your macro, and then you can override it. But then by default, you don't have to put it in there. Even though behind the scenes, when your code is compiled, the macro does drop it in. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we, we use it for um, a lot of other... So we have things in like controllers where we'll want to say... Um, always provide this same sorting behavior for parameters that are in, like coming into the controller. And we do that by defining a function on the controller module itself that's using this macro. Um, and that gives us like a very powerful way to kind of share this code and also provide that same functionality to all these different files. So, Yeah, we did something similar um, at Versus. We have uh, query modules mm-hmm. that we've extracted. And so let's say we have like a, a prize service or a prize context um, that will include a prize query submodule, and we'll say use vs.query and that pulls in not only um, like the ecto query helpers but it pulls in a lot of common functions um, yeah that adds sorting or um, like fuzzy finding helpers and what's cool about it is if you were just importing those functions into a module you could only use those functions like within that module but when you with with a macro Mm -hmm. it actually drops those functions into that module so then other modules can then call them on vs query right and in a similar vein um you can actually dynamically define functions on your modules as well uh based on some I don't know, you might have a set of fields where for every field you want to define a function. And we actually do this in our serializer, for instance. So um, by doing that, we implement a dummy function that can then be extended and overrided in each serializer, whereby you might have a set of fields that you want to serialize that provide a, um, a very uh, kind of default set of behavior but then for a a few fields you want to override the default behavior and do something different with it so um, what we do in that case is we allow you to override the function that the macro writes out and then that gives you the power to override it and define your own implementation of that function so um, that that's like a very powerful pattern and actually if you dig through some of the ecto uh, schema source you see this all over the place um defining fields that you can use for reflection and and various other things on on the schema itself yeah we do uh something similar 
adverses, we've talked about using Ecto for uh, to validate uh, external input. So we do that checking uh, when we check like the client params that are passed in. We have these validators, and at first we would write out an entire Ecto schema, like define an embedded schema, all these fields, and write out our write out a change set function and then a validate function, whatever. And it was a total pain. So we wrote a validator macro. So we say use VS validator and then pass in just a couple of options, a list of fields and their types, and a few options around well what's required. You know, is there are there sort ordering keys that we allow? Mm. And so it reduces these files to like five lines. Right, right. And I think that's the that's the power, right? Like you're you're kind of encapsulating all this behavior into a single macro that you can share across many of these files. Um, and it can become very expressive in that place, what you're defining, how it works. You can have overrides. And yeah, I think it's, I, I tend to feel like every time that we say, oh, macros are really powerful, but don't use them because it can be really bad is, is kind of doing ourselves a disservice in some ways, because I think you can screw yourself up with any kind of code, to be honest. Like you can, you know, you can write one big long module file where you have just all of your functions inside of it and you don't do good encapsulation and things like that. And to me, like, yes, metaprogramming can get you in an absolute state, but it's also a very powerful tool that allows you to express your code base more cleanly. Um, it allows you to share code better. It allows you to do all these things. And I think that um, you should definitely give it a second look. Um, I personally, like in our code base, I haven't got to the point where I'm like, Oh God, all these macros and they're so hard to understand. And we, we, we really use them for simple cases. And I think like that, that's it. It's about having good hygiene, um, with it as well. Do you write a lot of DSLs? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot. So here's, here's a couple of examples. So I gave the controller one about the sorting options that we have at the top. We also have, um, what we call our policies, which are, um, like policy objects that say like can, user access this thing um we have a few macros in there that we use uh one of them for saying that uh we have like a role-based access permission system for internally for users um and we can we can override any of those policies by using this macro that we have at the top that would say uh allow an admin to access all of these roles something like that um so that's that's a really powerful way that we use it hmm. uh, um, and then, yeah, my, honestly, like ninety percent of the usage is just doing, um, just doing using macros. To be honest, mm-hmm. like I just I just grepped in our project for def macro, and we have uh, eighty results in fifty five files, which might sound like a lot, but when I look through them, honestly, like so many of them are just using macros. Like we have our own. Um, schema override so instead of doing use ecto.schema we do uh, use our own schema that injects a few query functions that we use throughout all of our schemas um things like that Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah i like i think if anyone came here and they were like oh my god you use so many macros and it's so bad i think when you actually get into it you realize that um there are there there are macros there but they're really like very light very small they don't do too many nasty things where they're defining functions all over the place, you know, like dynamic functions. I I would say there. Sorry, as mm-hmm. a caveat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't write a lot of DSLs. You don't? No. I tend to prefer just 
writing out explicit functions. And sometimes, I mean, we, we have discussions about this at work, like, oh, is there a lot of boilerplate here? And then sometimes it's like, well, yeah, but it's explicit. And one of the philosophies of the language is to be explicit. Hmm. So I think it's a gray area. Yeah, it's true. Um, I just don't think that like doing a DSL like that isn't that explicit. You know, it's one layer of indirection, but I think like when you dig into the macros that it probably defines, I think I don't know. I, I don't think you're like losing that much by defining it in this DSL. I think that it's still like very expressive by doing that, rather than it might. Yeah, some of the explicitness is lost, but. Uh, I just feel like there isn't that many hoops you have to jump through to understand what's actually happening. I think you can also get into trouble with um, Dialyzer if you're using that. Like Dialyzer won't know how to understand. Um, yeah, if that's you're... a thing. That's definitely a thing. And some of the stack traces as well, to be honest. Yeah, those can get kind of wonky. Yeah. That, I would say, is probably one of the downsides here, for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I the Dialyzer case is definitely a problem as well at times. Um, but yeah i don't know does that outweigh the benefits i don't know i I would still push to say that um they're still really useful for for certain environments and certain uses you know Mm -hmm. i guess it just depends (laughs) every time (laughs) yeah I, i i would love to hear from other people who've got like a significant size code base and especially one that doesn't use uh macros you know I think it would be very hard, honestly, to have a larger Elixir code base and be totally clean of macros. Like, mm-hmm. and I, I think like from the examples we gave of like Phoenix and uh, I, I think even Plug, right? Plug itself is a macro. Well, but these are libraries, right? Or but in like, frameworks. I, so. But that's how I think about a lot of our code internally. Is like we have some things that are reused all over the place and are they not libraries in their own way you know mm-hmm. um they're concepts and patterns that you establish and then having a dsl on top actually makes it a lot easier to understand that that pattern yeah i think it, i mean it can add a lot of uh, helpful structure to your application i think there's a question around at what point do we apply that structure like if you have a young app you probably don't need macros like you want to sort of let these patterns evolve yeah and you reach yeah. the point around okay well now we have this clearly defined pattern in this code everywhere. Let's see if we can simplify it. And like with these validators I mentioned, we have a chunk of just these legacy validators because we're reluctant to go through and change 80 files mm-hmm. to migrate it. And maybe we should just suck it up and do it and have a big diff, whatever. Um, but there is an argument about like, don't go in and change everything all at once just because you made some minor change to your API. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. I think um, I think most of our macros have been extracted out of patterns that we've been reusing time and time again, and then we've we've seen the the need, and then we've broken it out into that abstraction, mm-hmm. um, and then cleaned up the underlying code. Like, and the, you know, there's a, there was always that talk of like, well, the it's like the rule of three, right? Like, you get to the third occurrence, and then you do it. But I I don't know if that's always been true, but um, I would say like. It becomes quite clear when you when you should extract uh, something like a macro, and especially just like with some using code as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I very rarely like dug into the AST itself. Yeah, I, I honestly I don't think we even have one instance of that in the code base. 
for us. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I would say like if you are going to do the using macro approach, something that I like to do is try and put the... Um, so you define lots of functions inside of the using macro, but I like to have uh, the functions that those functions call be outside of the using macro so you can test them independently if you need to. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that makes sense as public functions on the on the module. Um, so inside using, you would have a quote do and then you would import the functions in that module. Yeah, exactly. So then, and it gives you like that interface where you can test it outside of using it as well, which sometimes makes sense. Do you have a pattern for, in one of our macros, uh, we take some options and then we have to parse out a lot of stuff from the options. Yeah. So we have all this code that does this parsing like inside inside of the using macro. And it's really difficult to like separate out into helper functions or mm. extract some of that in helper functions. So we have this kind of long macro. Um, and is that just like taking from a keyword list and then you've got some default assignings and stuff like that? Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I've, we've, we don't probably have a pattern to clean that up. Um, yeah, I'm sure you could extract something there, though, because a macro block could be calling some other thing that dealt, dealt with the like default setting and extracting the correct arguments for you or something like that. Yeah, it can be a bit mind-bending to remember, like, is this the AST that it's dealing with or is this resolved into actual... Yeah, the... That that's something that uh, like the quote unquote stuff, like mm-hmm. where where you're using it, where it's quoted and where it's not. I've definitely got tripped up with that before, um, and I think that's something where um, you have to quote the params coming into the macro, quote the arguments coming in, sorry, and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then unquote them, sorry, when you're going to use them. Yeah, you quote the whole thing and then you unquote the individual. That's it. Arguments yeah. and, are and then there's like I think there's like a shorthand notation for un quoting lots of arguments coming into the using block as well if i remember yeah yeah i just uh i'll i'll try and link to that in the show notes if i can remember what the the syntax is okay yeah but i i think my my advice to everyone out there is like apply the same level of hygiene to macros as you do to the rest of your code base and you'll be okay that's it uh yeah just don't do anything stupid and you'll be right right but like that that's that same rule should apply always when developing right yeah thanks chris (laughs) yeah like i that's why i think like everyone who's like oh god this is awful is like the whole language is like built on that and you get this like tremendous power from it so um yeah do it don't be afraid try it out don't be afraid sorry swearing don't be afraid yeah cool cool yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> same thing uh and and i guess that concludes another episode of elixir talk where we give you somewhat useful advice yeah it is kind of weird talking about some of this stuff uh, without being able to show code definitely but um hopefully we can link to a few things and um there's the chris mccord book on macros which is actually really really good tiny book mm-hmm. uh but yeah very useful cool and still totally I think it's a few years old, but it should all still translate because I don't think there's been any changes at all to the macro interface, if I remember. Uh, not that I know of. Yeah, I can't I can't even think of any. Yeah, but there we go. Great. Well, thanks everyone for uh, hanging out with us for another awesome episode of Elixir Talk. Yeah, thank you, everyone. If you like this show, make sure you go into that place where you get those podcasts 
and you are listening to this one currently and hit that rate or review button, whatever the label is, to actually give us some feedback and maybe give us some likes because then your friends know about it and then we get more listeners and then our lives are better. Everyone's lives are better. Everyone's lives are better, definitely. And uh, if you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. As always, you can get in touch with us at github.com slash elixitalk slash elixitalk. You can open up an issue there. Or you can get get us up on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash elixitalk. And we're also in the Elixirlang Slack. You can look for Desmond Monster and CJ Bell. And we also have an Elixitalk channel. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you better... If you type something in there, at us. Yeah... Yeah, are you bad at doing that as well? Uh, I just I don't I don't check it as often as I should. Yeah, me either. So, um, sorry if you've hit us up there before and the garbage collector came and stole the messages. Womp 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 womp. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening, as always, folks, and uh, keep elixiring. Keep elixiring. <laughs>